we want to encourage everyone. We don't want to attack anybody. We want, don't want to belittle anybody. We want to include everyone in the discussion and encourage everyone to go in that direction and to make this a safe and a healthy world by getting rid of pollution. Hello and Happy New Year. It's January, so I think we can still say that, right? It's also 2020, so whoa, it is going to be a huge year. We hope that you got some rest over the holidays and that you're ready for it because this year is already off to a crazy start. Between the devastating wildfires in Australia, conflict in the Middle East, and a fast-approaching Democratic presidential primary, there has been no shortage of news since 2020 began. We're going to discuss some of the latest news on this week's show, our first official show of the new year. And we're going to bring you a sit-down interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger, actor, businessman, bodybuilder, and of course, former Republican California governor, who's known for putting in place many of the state's foundational climate and energy policies. We'll get his reflections on 2019, including what it was like to support teen activist Greta Thunberg's journey across the U.S., and get his thoughts on what's to come in 2020 and how to keep progressing on climate and energy issues in these polarized times. Welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the globe, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I am your host, Julia Piper, a contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. And speaking of around the world, I'm actually coming to you this week from Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. We were off last week as I journeyed across the planet to come here for the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Forum, for the International Renewable Energy Agency's annual assembly, and for several other events linked to Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week. I was also here to see the results of the Zayed Sustainability Prize, which provides funding to innovators addressing global sustainability priorities across health, food, energy, water, and global high schools. I was actually on the selection committee for this year's energy category and had the chance to put my reporting on some early stage companies to use in helping select this year's winner. I bring this up because I'm really excited to share that the award went to France's Electricians Without Borders, an organization I actually had not heard of prior to the Zayed Prize, but I think is really interesting because they're teaching energy and entrepreneurship to Rohingya refugees and Bangladeshi citizens. And teaching is the key word there. This organization is not just showing up and building out projects and leaving, but actually training locals on how to install and maintain their own power supplies and also how to be entrepreneurs and be autonomous and launch their own clean energy businesses. So much respect for that organization. It doesn't really fall into the realm of my coverage, but I wanted to give a shout out for the work that they're doing. And if you have any interest, I hope that you check them out. All right, so while there is lots of good news coming out of Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week, including that the government is boosting its renewable energy targets, it comes against a backdrop of tension in the Middle East region which I'll discuss in just a moment with my Democrat and Republican co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton. Furthermore, it's impossible to ignore that Abu Dhabi Sustainability Week is taking place in a young and wealthy petrostate. And while the government here has made new commitments to double its renewable energy portfolio over the next 10 years and slash carbon emissions by 25%, the economics and geopolitics of oil and gas loom large. And so does the climate crisis. Headlines continue to emerge on the Australian wildfires. Meanwhile, data shows that global emissions continue to increase in 2019. 
I sat down with my co-host last week to discuss the state of climate and energy politics at the outset of the year. And I'll note that things have moved quickly since then. Tensions between the U.S. and Iran were at a high when we recorded this, and they have eased to some degree since then. But we are still in a moment of geopolitical unrest. So next, you'll hear from Brandon Hurlbut, our Democrat, partner at consulting firm Boundary Stone Partners and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. And you'll hear from Shane Skelton, our Republican, partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. After that catch up on the news, we'll turn to our exclusive interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger, where we discuss everything from climate activism to tennis. So with that, we've embarked on a new season of political climate. We are so glad you're here. We hope that you hit subscribe and follow along. Leave us a review. We'd really love it if you do so. But for now, on with the show. Happy New Year, you guys. Holy crap. 2020 sucks. <laughs> Already. We're on the brink of potential war in the Middle East following uh, the Soleimani uh, attack. Tensions with the U.S. and Iran are at all-time high. An entire continent is on fire. An entire continent is on fire. Um, So, yeah, how are you guys doing? Guys, that's like a terrible way to start the year with our audience. Uh, I'm sorry. That's true. Let's quit being Debbie Downer. Should we we start again? I hope things are okay despite all that. I mean, okay, in your personal lives for now as we launch into this uh, this next year. Yeah, well, we are actually recording this uh, a little earlier than this will actually air because I'm about to take off to do a month of travel reporting in Abu Dhabi, Kenya, and India. And so, quite honestly, the geopolitics are very front of mind because um, some areas I was planning to go in Kenya have been under attack and were just under attack by al-Shabaab, another terrorist group, uh, attacked a military base, killed three Americans right next door to where I was supposed to be going to visit a friend with the World Bank. So, sorry, I'm taking this to a downer place again, but that's just to say there'll be lots of exciting right, reporting I have an uplifting coming. message. Okay, go, go, go. We have started the decade of the Green New Deal. That's my prediction. The decade of the Green New Deal. Okay, what do you mean by that? It's the 2020s. And it may not happen in 2020, but this, this, is like the decade this of will be known as the, as the decade of the Green New Deal. That are you gonna are you gonna trademark it? that, Brandon? Is that your is that your thing for for the twenty uh, not twenty twenty I guess but the twenty twenties whatever that's yeah. called? I mean, it better be, otherwise we're in big trouble. There you go. There'll be more Australias. Wish it into existence, that. right? Well, we could just pursue good policies instead. That would be that would be another thing we could do to avoid big trouble. I mean, at this point, any policies would be good. The fact that Congress couldn't pass even an energy storage tax incentive last session was not the most inspiring. Shane, what I mean, that's a good segue. So how do you how do you think about the situation in Iran and how does it impact climate? I mean, obviously, there is, you know, oil markets, prices could go up. Gasoline prices could go up. There could be a tax on oil refineries. Um, Do you think, you know, right now, the Department of Energy, there's the strategic petroleum oil reserve that the U.S. government controls. They'll be talking about whether they want to release some of that to um, you know, uh, affect gas prices, gasoline prices. How do you see this shaking out uh, the politics of Iran on climate and on the on the general politics in this country right now? Yeah, I mean, from an energy and climate perspective, I see it probably being you know not all that positive for climate, very positive for you know flexing the U.S. Uh, muscle on domestic energy production. But again, that doesn't you know necessarily bode well 
for climate outcomes. I think a shock like this in the past would have, you know, had a lot more of an impact on oil markets, in my opinion, as an observer than it did. Um, prices are already retreating today. U.S. is exporting, you know, 4 million barrels of oil a day as of this month. I mean, obviously, until late 2015, we weren't allowed to export oil at all. But even then, if we could have, there wouldn't have been this much surplus production in the U.S. So I think I look at it two ways. And one, um, you know, all of those people who said that ramping up domestic production will insulate U.S. consumers from price shocks were proven you know, definitively right, in my view. Um, but secondarily, that doesn't you know, bode well for reducing emissions, especially in the transportation sector. So I, I think it's a, it's a mixed sort of blessing. It's um, yay U.S. for protecting ourselves against international uh, energy market shocks. And then also, OK, but what do we do next? As Julia mentioned, we didn't get a storage tax credit. That's not you know a direct shot at EVs, obviously, but anytime you continue to increase development of energy storage and incentivize energy storage, that's going to make batteries more efficient, even the batteries that end up in, in, in cars, the smaller ones in the longer term. So I guess my, my two cents is that it's a total mixed bag. It's not great for climate, um, but, but it did show that our energy system writ large is far more resilient to global uh, happenings than it used to be. Politically speaking, my Lord, uh, who knows? I mean, I have no idea what Iran's capabilities are in the region um, or in North America or, you know, from a cyber perspective. I have no idea, you know, what their risk tolerance is and in interfacing with the U.S. Um, it, it became clear that that President Trump uh, is not have a lot of patience for Iran. And so this could escalate quickly if they decide to, to do something um, to counter um, what, what, you know, what we did, uh, that's a whole lot of, I don't know is I want to hear, I want to hear someone else's opinion. <laughs> we should know that we're not like geopolitical experts here, but I think that's a fair point about energy markets. But I thought the spike in oil might prompt a different discussion around EVs becoming more compelling, but you're saying Shane, the markets may have already seen prices decline in oil. Brandon, what was your perspective? How's this resonating among Democrats? I mean, you talked about the storage tax credit not happening with the EV tax credit was also not extended, uh, or, uh, the cap lifted. And if I'm a Democrat running for president, I would inject this into the conversation. I would inject this is a segue to make climate uh, such a big contrast with Trump. We could spend money on more war in the Middle East and more lives lost, or we could invest that money here in making electric vehicles to get off of oil and not be dependent on them for you know this stuff. Let them sort this stuff out on their own, which is actually what something that president trump campaigned on i think americans are tired of war in the middle east why not take those resources home and invest them here in making electric vehicles those are better jobs cleaner air and helps address climate change yeah and, and brandon i want to jump on the point you made about the ev credit because i didn't mention that in mine i had a couple friends over last night i know we're going to air this later both of whom uh, just got teslas they're excited about being ev drivers and, and ev customers and my frustration is we were talking about how cool these cars were and sort of the, the small upgrades they've made to their homes in order to accommodate the charging. One of my biggest frustrations was that I'll never buy a Tesla, not because it's not great, but because the tax credit has phased out. So I'm going to go buy a foreign car, which makes absolutely no sense, just so that I can have a cleaner car and, and not extending or expanding the EV credit or at least allowing them to continue to sell domestically manufactured zero emissions vehicles and having that be as eligible for a tax credit as would be a foreign model, that just blows my mind. I mean, you could still buy a Tesla if you just wanted one, you know, 
Maybe fewer games of tennis at the country club. I don't know. U.S. government policy is incentivizing us to buy foreign vehicles at this point now that the Tesla credit is phased out. That's not a good thing for, in my view, energy policy or domestic manufacturing policy. I know. I just really wanted to tease you. I don't know. I just I, I think this raises a lot of questions because so much in the Middle East is, is tied to energy. Right. That's like the whole reason we're engaged there and not in like civil wars in Africa. Right. And like that's a choice that we're making that we don't have to make. We could do it here. Resources are definitely part of it. There are some, I think, broader geopolitical concerns and securities concerns around like nation building. Like how's that gone for the last 20 years? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's crazy to me, though, is that this there's an idea of having the U.S. pull back from the world stage. But somehow that's there's different things being conflated. There's one thing about pulling back from conflict, but then now pulling back from all these agreements, I think is very dangerous. The Iran nuclear deal the U.S. withdrew from, the Paris Climate Agreement the U.S. withdrew from, under the guise of like, okay, we've been too involved internationally. But if you pull back entirely, you ruin the sense of cooperation and good faith, which I think created at least a floor of negotiation. And now we're in chaos really uh and so it's i think a much more disconcerting world to be living in Uh, a great way to keep engaging with the world would have economic leverage by having all these great clean energy technologies to sell to them that would help address their problems if we had great evs and solar panels and wind turbines and batteries that we could sell to them that would be great that's like what china does like they create an economic relationship with these countries and they leverage that you know, for their own national priorities. And instead, we're leveraging these defense things, which haven't really, you know, gotten yielded us where, much. Yeah, yielded much recently. Yeah. Well, that is exactly why I am going on this trip again to Abu Dhabi, Kenya, and India to look at how some of these other major markets and investors in those markets are supporting the clean energy economy because the US isn't the only player anymore. And it's maybe losing ground. Yeah. I'm wondering if voters are connecting the dots between what's happening in Iran and the, how oil plays into all of that and what's happening in Australia with the wildfires there. Um, you know, the Golden Globes were on, all of the celebrities were talking about Australia uh, in in their acceptance speeches. Shane, are you hearing about Australia at all in your world? Are, are Republicans, you know, mentioning it? I'm sort of curious, like, uh, it's, on, it's all over the news. Like, I mean, how is it, what does it mean for you? Yeah, I'm hearing. I mean, so let me let me bifurcate here. I'm hearing about it a ton because my wife is a dual citizen and my mother-in-law is an Australian citizen. And so she's obviously been incredibly concerned and we spent the holidays um, with them. And so I'm actually hearing more really about uh, what's going on in Australia than probably 99% of people on earth. Uh, But secondarily to that, no, not in political discussions. Um, I've not had a single casual discussion with anyone over the last, you know, several weeks where that came up as a topic. I think, you know, people are probably aware of it. If I said to someone, hey, did you see on the news what's going on in Australia? We'd say, yeah, sure. But uh, it, it certainly has not surfaced as a, as a main discussion point in my circle, no. That's kind of amazing because it really is, you know, so devastating. I think 25 people have died and they're expecting several more weeks of fires. So many uh, animals have been killed, all kinds of livestock. Like the economic hit from that in these rural areas will be so huge. Uh, So yeah, that story is not going away, unfortunately. Yeah, I think this will be the decade where climate change becomes the dominant, you know, political issue of the century. We're really gonna see it in this decade.
<laughs> Everyone's like, finally, it finally got some play because it's so critical and such a big emergency. It's such a double-edged sword. I read something and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on it. Maybe one of you guys can inform me or maybe we can do a future episode about this with, with the author. Um, but I read that that scientists, or at least some scientists, are getting closer to being able to draw some sort of nexus between um, weather patterns and specific events and a changing climate. And if that science is is real and it becomes accessible and people understand it, that will do more to get people behind the idea of addressing climate change than anything we've heard today. Because when you talk about scientific models about 2050, I don't know anyone who really cares about that, even if it's an issue they care about. But when you start talking about these extreme you know, weather events and disasters we're talking about right now, and you can draw a straight line, I think that'll really get people interested or concerned or whatever the word is, but a- activated. You know, we got terrific feedback on Dave Roberts uh, being on the show just before the holidays. If, you've been, if you haven't listened to it, check it out. But he had an interesting sort of Twitter storm where he said, uh, and I think he's totally right about this, in the, this decade, it can't be just symbolic stuff anymore. It can't just be like, oh, we've now accepted that climate change is happening. Or on the Democratic side, we can't be just be celebrating these symbolic acts like we, you know, oh, this weatherman, you know, is mentioning climate change more like all that stuff like that is good. But we're beyond that now. Like this has to be the decade of like action. This has to be the decade of results. I think uh, I've mentioned this also on the Dave Roberts interview, but why that has to be in contrast, I don't know. Why not celebrate the weatherman bringing it up to an audience that maybe never hears the word climate change in their daily life and also say that there needs to be concrete action? I don't know that those have to be opposed. And, you know, that's just, and those are discussions that we're going to keep having over the course of this year is how to talk more about climate. But I think more is more. There's no reason to shun any way that people approach this topic uh, because, as NPR reported today, Indonesia has huge monsoons, unprecedented, and still people there don't really even know what climate change is. That term's not even used very often. So this is a global issue, and there's tons more of global education that I think needs to happen. So I say bring it all on, and it's on us as communicators to talk more about it in accessible ways. Fair point. So it is 2020, guys. We have a presidential election. I mean, we are a month, less than a month from Iowa. We've got New Hampshire coming, South Carolina, Nevada. Super Tuesday is in two months, less than two months from today. Yeah, the week we will be back in the same place or we'll be back in the U.S. and we'll be back here will be the week of the Iowa caucus. Any predictions, Brandon? I know you're backing um, Elizabeth Warren, but obviously, you know, stuff changes in politics and it's been a few weeks. Do you have any predictions for for those of us sort of novices in Democratic primaries to think about over the next month? It's extraordinarily fluid still. I think what I'm hearing from my friends on all the campaigns about Iowa is, uh, in particular, is that uh, people may have sort of a a candidate that they like more than others today, but they're not committing uh, right now totally to some candidate. So some Warren it, folks are warming to Biden. It's 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 fluid. I mean, a lot can change, and a lot often does change in the final month in Iowa. But I think with this to bring it full circle to the conversation we're having about Iran is there are so many events that could intervene between now and in Iowa, or now in Super Tuesday, or now in November. You know. 
what happens in the Middle East and the president's decisions there are going to have enormous impact on the political environment, both in the primary and the general election. And who knows what could happen? I mean, Australia just came out of nowhere, started on fire the entire continent, right? I mean, what if another climate catastrophe hits? Like, what does that change or not change? So uh, we are living in a very unpredictable environment. And so it's tough to make predictions, but um, we're going to know a lot more uh, in the next, you know, month or two, once people start going to caucus and start voting. Um, and we could have a scenario where out of the early states in February, there's kind of a draw. And then Michael Bloomberg comes in with his billions of dollars, uh, and the super Tuesday where the actual delegates, you know, are at stake. There's more delegates at stake in super Tuesday and that could change everything too. So it's going to be really exciting to cover this with both of you. And especially because climate keeps coming up, uh, you know, how that how that's going to impact the race. It is a, a tense political climate, if you will. Uh, we didn't even talk about impeachment or the State of the Union. Or, I mean, there are so many things that are going to affect all There's this. so many things that are going to affect this. But first, we're going to kick off this year with our interview with Arnold Schwarzenegger. We sat down with him just before the holiday to get his view on 2020 and what happened in 2019. So here's an interview. We'll be back again soon. So I want to start with reflecting back on 2019. One of the biggest stories in climate change was the rise of the youth movement. And uh, Governor, uh, you met with Greta Thunberg earlier this year at the Austrian World Summit. She's now the Time Person of the Year. And you supported her journey across North America. As many people may know, you helped her get a Tesla. So I'm curious from your point of view, do you think the youth movement has been effective this year? Have you seen it gain momentum in a real way and maybe even changed your thinking around how effective these kids are? Well, you know, it's interesting uh, how for many, many years or decades involved in an issue and then all of a sudden some little girl comes around like this and you get a new idea. And this is what happened there. I mean, I read her story last year and I said to myself, that's really interesting. A young girl, 16 years old, sits out there in front of the parliament building and protests that the politicians are not doing enough about climate change and are not doing enough to get rid of pollution. And uh, the more I thought about it, I said to myself, boy, it is, I understand why a young girl and why young people should be involved in this movement because it's their generation that's going to pay, to, you know, to really feel the consequences of the inaction of the politicians. And, uh, and that was her whole rap, was, you know, you affecting us, my generation. And I thought that that voice should be really heard. And that's when I got in touch with her and asked her to come to Vienna, to our world summit, the climate summit. And uh, she came there and she did a fantastic job in not only with her speech, but also with the interviews that we did together. Uh, and uh, so I became kind of a fan of hers and thought that this is really great that she's going to rally up the young kids that maybe we don't reach that well with my age or with someone being maybe in their 40s. Um, so she was, she came on like gangbusters. She was very, very passionate about it. And so I now see the effect that she had. She went around the world and got all the young kids involved, the high school kids and uh, even younger kids. Uh, college kids, everybody was up, went out there 
and uh, protested and really uh, followed her. And so she had a tremendous impact. And I think it was great to see her become uh, the person of the year for Time magazine and be on that cover and, uh, you know, to celebrate that. I, I think that she's really going to help the environmental movement a lot. So we've had some people on the show who think of there being some competing movements within the climate movement. So, for instance, John Kerry launched the World War Zero Initiative, which you are a founding member of. And it tries to reach across the aisle, be more bipartisan, uh, and it has a big goal, but it's not trying to be an activist group per se. It's not trying to be as radical as maybe some of the youth climate leaders are. Do you view those, these two things in conflict, or can they work together? Well, no. I think that uh, it is kind of like, uh, when I think back, uh, the fitness movement. You know, there's no conflicting kind of things. There's, they all kind of complement each other. Uh, so she's addressing, you know, young people. Young people should rally up. Young people should protest. And young people should let their voice be heard. And uh, to let the young people know, don't just sit in front of a TV set and get angry at what's going on out there in politics or with issues. Uh, go and do something about it. Get off that couch. Get out of the house and protest. Let your voice be heard. And so this is quite different than what John Kerry's idea is uh, with World War Zero, right? I mean, it's like uh, he wants to bring the most influential people together and Democrats and Republicans and to kind of sell the idea that it's not a partisan issue, that it is a, a people's issue. And uh, so he wants all of them using their power to go out and have an effect. So all of them are complementing. That's why I don't really like the word uh, they're competing because they're not competing against each other. There's many environmental groups uh, that are not competing, that are all helping one another. It is just that when you are in an environmental kind of a debate, uh, it is difficult sometimes for people to understand what are they really fighting for? Because there is sometimes uh, people that are protesting just that we are just using, you know, buying too many products and that we are using too much of everything. And uh, there's others that are fighting for, you know, getting rid of plastic uh, spoons and pl plastic straws. Others are fighting for getting rid of the plastic in the ocean. Others are fi fighting for, you know, against the uh, fossil fuels. And so there's all these different kind of uh, uh, problems that we have environmentally out there that ought to be fought for and uh, or fought against. And uh, that it makes it very confusing for the people. Well, what am I really signing on for here? What should I fight for here? Is it global climate change? Is it pollution? Is it plastic? Is it this? Is it that? Overconsumption? Or, or what are we fighting for? And so I think that the environmentalists, all of them have to really come together and say that the most important issue right now is to get rid of pollution. Well, I think a lot of people are wondering whether the bipartisan approach will be successful, and I know you have some thoughts on that, Shane. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, Governor, you know, I've heard you talk about in the past a view that I share very much, that is you don't have to give up on being a Republican. You can believe all the things that you've always believed and, you know, help get Republicans where they need to be on some of these issues rather than abandoning the party. We've seen several people abandon the party uh, lately. One of the things that I'm working on early next year is gathering some of the young conservative groups who have been fighting for climate and the environment and who I think their voices haven't been heard as loudly. Uh, historically, I think young Republicans don't picket in the streets. They do other things to try to be effective, organize on campuses, get out the vote efforts. 
What would be your advice to young conservatives who very much want to save the party, not abandon it, but aren't being heard in the way that some of these liberal youth activists are? Well, first of all, I don't think that it has anything to do with, you know, leaving the party or being with the party or any of that, because those are people's issues. I think that uh, Republicans and Democrats have one goal, and that is to make this the number one place in the world, to keep it the number one place in the world, and to make people's lives better, and to be a fair environment and an equal environment. It's just their approaches are different. And this is why I don't argue and don't ever think of Democrats as the villains, because their goal is the same. The goal of the Republicans is the same. It's just their approaches is different. And uh, I think that what we have to do is just find what is the best approach to have the best effect on people and not worry so much about is this falling within a Republican philosophy or not. It could easily be that right now it's not falling in the philosophy and Republicans don't spend as much time on uh, you know, fighting global climate change because they don't like that word in the first place. And they didn't, most of the people don't even understand what it means. Uh, so this is why I say, let's keep it simple. Republicans and Democrats can go and get behind the idea of fighting pollution. President Nixon created the EPA. He was a Republican. He created the EPA because he wanted to make sure that the American people are protected, that they have a healthy life and they're not being killed by pollution. And that's what's happening now is we have 200,000 people dying of pollution in America. We have 7 million people die of pollution. So when you say to me, says, what should young Republicans do? Is Young Republicans should be out there rallying and fighting and protesting this stupid thing that, the, that politicians cannot really solve this problem, that they're arguing over this. Is this a Democratic philosophy or Republican? Is it better for my party or is it better for his party? It's a non nonsense dialogue. We got to go and serve the people. People are dying. People are getting cancer because of pollution. There's young children that are having asthma in an early age because of the pollution. I mean, those are inexcusable things that we let happen. We, the government, should always be there to protect the people. Governor, I have a question for you about a recent development on pollution. So Congress just passed a bill to keep the U.S. government open, the funding bill. And Democrats tried to include in that bill tax credit extensions for solar, wind, electric vehicles. These are very popular. Studies show that with the EV tax credit extension, you'd have maybe 5.7 million more EVs on the road in the next 10 years. Republicans in the Senate agreed to it. Trump's Treasury Secretary apparently agreed to it. When it got to Trump, he said, I will veto the bill if it includes the clean energy tax credits. So the Democrats decided not to shut down the government over this. Did they make the right call? Should they have shut down the government to support those tax credits? Well, you know, it's always a tricky question. At what point are you, uh, you know, what the rhythm is uh, for the Republicans and the Democrats? Who will win when you shut down the government? So um, I think that the best thing to do is, is to work out the problem and to figure out a way where you compromise. And that's what we have done in California all the time. You have to understand that when you compromise, you cannot reach a 10. In the 10 meaning the ultimate, the best, the, 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 your ideal deal. Well, as soon as you compromise, that is not going to happen. 
So if you do, for instance, healthcare reform, you're not going to go and create a 10 for the hospitals and a 10 for the nurses, a 10 for the doctors, a 10 for the insurance. It's not going to happen because they all, each one of them has a different interest. I got so you. So when you get to a 7, you have to be happy. I, for instance, believe very strongly in, in really uh, creating in tax incentives in order for us to go green because taxes are usually uh, means and ways to change people's lifestyle. And we've seen it, how we reached our million solar roof initiative, right? We have uh, laid out a vision and a program where we said we're going to want to have a, a million solar roofs in California. And the way we did it was through the PUC, through the Public Utility Commission, uh, to help uh, to give $3 billion in subsidies in the beginning. Uh, so more people were able to then to go, let's say your solar cost you for a roof $14,000. It brought it down maybe to $10,000. So it, m- it made it more affordable to people, and they could see then real savings with the electricity, with the power. And uh, so it really started taking off and off. And now you don't need the tax credit anymore because why? Because after a million solar roofs, the solar prices came down. And so this is the idea also with everything. I think if it's with windmills, with wind, with all of those kind of things, I think we want to incentivize people to go in that direction. So just one quick follow-up on that because I think this is the frustration. I don't know what to do because Democrats support more aggressive action. And so the tax credits are the compromise, but we can't get the president to even support that. So what are we going to do? Well, you know, look, on the end, <laughs> if you don't have enough votes, you cannot override the president, then you really don't have anything. So you have to wait. And this is something that the people then have a choice. Are they frustrated that we don't get anything done in that direction? Uh, you know, and then vote for another president, vote for someone else? Uh, or is this president in all the other things good enough that you don't really want to change president? So there's a decision that people have to make an end. But I just feel very strongly that um, there were a, a deal has to be reached, an overall energy deal. An environmental deal has to be reached between the two parties because there is a sweet spot there. And they just have to find that sweet spot where you give the Republicans, you know, the oil stuff that they want and the nuclear power that they want. And the, the, the Democrats, you give them the tax incentive they want and let's set certain goals to reduce the greenhouse gases and the pollution by 25% at a certain time period to create more renewables, which, of course, America as a whole is way behind, you know, China or Germany or other places. I mean, if we wouldn't have California, we would have very little renewable energy. We have now in California over the last you know, 10 years, we went from 20% to 50%. So we have done a great, great job here by everyone working together. I am curious about that working together point because uh, you held a celebration of the One Million Solar Roofs Initiative in Clovis, California, in the Central Valley. I'm curious why you picked the Central Valley. You referred to it at that conference as the abs of California. And I think it really speaks to bringing people along. So I'm curious why you picked that and how you engage people in the Central Valley, which is a more conservative area on this clean energy agenda. I think that I have always naturally kind of uh, an interest to help the underdog. And um, that's so why you support I've, this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good laugh. podcast. Are you kidding me? You guys are doing a fantastic job. But, I, you know, so I, when I was governor, I always felt that not many kind of things are being taken to the Central Valley. Everything happens in Northern California, 
or Southern California. And people are always asking, what is more important, you know, Southern California and Northern California? And they never really debated about the Central Valley. And I thought that the Central Valley is just, you know, our breadbasket. I mean, it's like they create so much agriculture and it's such a huge stimulus for our economy that makes our economy kind of very diversified, right? And uh, there's so many hardworking people up there and uh, really great leaders in the political field, Democrats and Republicans alike, but they don't get always the attention. So naturally, I, I, I picked right away and I said, I mean, they said, you want to do it in LA, you want to do it in, in Sacramento? I said, guys, everything is always happening in Sacramento or in Los Angeles or San Francisco. I said, why don't we go to the Central Valley where none of those activities take place? So let's pick a, a success story in the Central Valley. And they found this school district, the Clovis School District, that have now more than 20 schools that are now having solar. And this school district saves now $4 million a year on energy costs because of the solar. Now, what do they do with this $4 million? They put it in the classroom. And they help kids so they get better education. So this is the kind of advantages that you have when you go green and when you can get then be cheaper in delivering green energy. So we wanted to, to celebrate this school district of the great job that they are doing and also at the same time put the spotlight on it that we have hit a million solar roofs and, uh, you know, let's keep going. Let's go for the next million. And let's go and try to, to create now a million batteries. Because, as you know, batteries are very important because there's certain times when solar is good, uh, but then you have to store the solar. And with batteries, you can store solar and then use it at night. And this is exactly why we need then more batteries. So we're talking about California leadership here, uh, but that's under threat by the Trump administration. There are several lawsuits, and most recently, the administration suing California over its cap-and-trade program. And I wanted to ask you about this because the lawsuit actually quotes a comment you made back in 2007, shortly after signing the California Global Warming Solutions Act of 2006, which laid the groundwork for cap-and-trade. And you said, a very positive statement, that California can be uh, a force of a nation-state. And the Trump administration seems to take issue with this. So I guess, what do you say to that? that critique of what California is doing? Well, I think that uh, it's no different in a way than when I was governor and we fought the federal government then. Just imagine that we had to kind of convince the EPA in Washington that greenhouse gases are a pollutant. Think about that for a second. They said when we met with Secretary Johnson, who was the EPA secretary, I went in there with uh, Senator Parfley. And uh, she writes most of our environmental laws, as she wrote at this time. And I took her in, and I wanted to have a discussion with him and say, you know, we need the waiver, and here's why. And he said, well, we have to have a discussion about that. There have to be debates, and there have to be in the hearings about it, and all this kind of stuff. I said, for what? We know that greenhouse gases is a pollutant. I said, and therefore, we should have the right to control our own air in California and have our tailpipe emission standards, our cap and trade, and all those kind of things that we want to do. And uh, he kept insisting, no, no, we can't do that. It's not a pollutant. So we took them to court, the federal government. And uh, we won the first round. Then he went the second round, and we won again. And then he went all the way to the Supreme Court and we won again. Uh, and the Supreme Court was very clear that, yes, greenhouse gases are pollutant. And I said to myself, oh, duh. 
I mean, <laughs> are we really that stupid? But it was not that they were stupid. It just was a political thing. They just thought we would send the wrong message to the oil companies, and then they maybe would not finance our campaigns, and they would be pissed off at us because, you know, they, and we don't want them to be mad at us because otherwise we don't get the money from them. Not that they're spending that much money. It's maybe $19 million or whatever they spend all together in Washington for all of, you know, controlling all those legislators and tangling some, a few dollars in front of their face to devote their direction. And uh, it was a kind of embarrassing. But the bottom line is, is we want to make sure that, uh, that the politicians really go and think of it, of what is the right thing. And the Supreme Court made it very clear that greenhouse gases are pollutant, and therefore we had the right then to control our own air and to get the waiver from the federal government. So that was very, very helpful. So there's always a battle, there's always a struggle, and uh, there's always compromise. And so I think that we always have to, like, what is the thing that they always teach you when you play tennis? You gotta hit the tennis ball on a sweet spot. There's a sweet spot on the tennis racket. Teach me, I've lost my last five five matches. Believe I me, I lost many <laughs> matches. I could barely ever find the, the sweet spot on the tennis racket. But the same is in golf. They always say, you know, the, the, what, the two things they always tell, tell, teach you in older sports is follow through. So when you start the swing, follow through. And the same thing is, when you start with something, finish it. You know, so I, when you ask me why am I so passionate about it, uh, you know, I, I, it's follow through. You know, we are not there yet. We are there and we, we are very happy that California went really it, the whole way of what we planned and now we got the next step, but we want the rest of the world also to follow through. And so we want to encourage everyone. We don't want to attack anybody. We want, don't want to belittle anybody. We want to include everyone in the discussion and encourage everyone to go in that direction and to make this a safe and a healthy world by getting rid of pollution. We have time still to do it, even though there's a lot of people that are scrambling and that are saying, you know, in 10 years, the world is coming to an end and all this stuff. Uh, I think that scare tactics do not work with people. I think what works is by showing them a reasonable uh, you know, uh, answer to the problem, and they ask the people for all of them to join in, in that crusade that we can accomplish much more if we all work together. That is, I think, the key thing here. So a lot of people may be feeling, you know, disheartened right now. There's a fierce Democratic primary. They may be struggling with the wildfires and recovering from that. Uh, there's water issues, and it just doesn't feel like anything's getting done. So what do you say to people who are looking at 2020, feeling tired, and but also worried? How do you get them to keep going on these issues? Well, I think things are getting done. I mean, not fast enough. Uh, yeah, but remember, this is not a dictatorship, right? You're always in the state. Could you have to one. deal with... Uh, yeah, I mean, you have to deal with, uh, you know, 120 legislators. Everyone has a different opinion. Everyone tries to protect their neighborhood and spend money on their neighborhood. So uh, I think that, for instance, when it comes to fires, I think the Governor Newsom did a great job by now getting the helicopters that are needed and getting the airplanes that are needed so that they can dump uh, fire retardant in, uh, at night when there is no visibility, which they couldn't do with the kind of outdated equipment and outdated resources and helicopters and airplanes that we've had up until now. So I think that he's been doing a good job and they're moving forward. And I think that when it comes to droughts, 
you're absolutely right. They are totally slow at the wheel. But it, again, it takes a lot of work to show examples of what certain cities do in California that have uh, solved that problem and that uh, are collecting the water when it rains. Because remember that we have an average of around 14 to 16 inches of rain a year. And if we just collect five inches of that rain, we would have enough water that we don't have to worry about a drought. But it's running off into the ocean. Every day, our, our whole infrastructure was built to go and have the water run off your house and then run off the canal and then run off into the ocean. And what they should do is that every house should collect its own water when it rains so that you have some you know, gray water so they can take showers with that water and can use it for other things. And you're hopeful, sounds like. Well, no, I mean, look, I've seen firsthand that when I was governor, there was 50% of the stuff that we were able to accomplish, and the other 50% you can. You know, you said a, a whole list of, of things that you want to accomplish, and half of it you accomplish, and the other half you don't. So that's just the way it is. And then you, you, you're termed out. Then you're out of office, and so therefore you can't. But, you know, it, it's, it's not that you can't get it done because you're termed out. It's just... In the meantime, other problems come up. So this is a, a revolving kind of a thing. This is like always putting out fires. But the key thing is, is that Democrats and Republicans work together more in harmony and find that sweet spot I was talking about. That's where the, 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 the answer is. Finding the sweet spot and then getting the things done and recognizing the fact that you can never really get a 10, a, per, a perfect deal. There's always a give and take on all of those things. And that's just the way it is. Well, we sincerely, sincerely appreciate you supporting us this year and continuing these conversations. It's, it's truly been an eye-opening year personally, and so we really do appreciate you. And your Thank time. you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Happy New Thank Year you. and Happy Holiday. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that is our first episode of 2020. Thanks so much for listening to Political Climate. And if you haven't yet, hit subscribe. We are on almost every podcasting platform out there. Also, you can follow along with us on Twitter at poly underscore climate or on Instagram with the same handle. Also, please leave us a review if you get a moment to. It means a lot. It helps us grow and it's a great place for you to leave feedback on ways we can improve the show. Next week, I'll be coming to you from Kenya and we will have a special announcement. We've got a new series in the works that tackles a big issue of our time. Tune in next week to learn what that is all about. But for now, signing off from Abu Dhabi, Salam Alaikum. Mm-hmm.